Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An Erio's production. Menopause is coming and the men have all left town. But I'm not giving up until I see that baby crown. 39 and single. Can someone help me out? He could be bald and bearded, shorter, tall, funny, smart, love basketball, from gay to straight, black to white, tiny eyes with an underbite, I just need sperm, sperm cast. Hey everyone, I'm sorry for the delay, the power went out on the farm all of yesterday and most of last night, and uh, the generator was also down, so... There was no way I was going to be able to edit because uh, my hard drive requires power. Anyway, let's jump right to it. Uh, Maybe I won't jump right to it because I want to thank my Patreon subscribers, my newest ones, Valerie T. and David W. This week on the Patreon, my subscribers got to watch a fun video of my mom answering questions. We talked about vegetable gardens and phone sex. You're really missing out. Anyway, if you want to join the Patreon, go for it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spermcast and you'll have lots and lots of extra bonus content to watch and listen to. Also, big thank you to some Venmo supporters, Peter and Alex. Thank you so much for going out of your way to support the podcast. It means so much to me and I'm so flattered. If you're out there and want to support the podcast without joining the Patreon, yes, you can go to Venmo and toss me a couple bones at molly-hockey. Okay, so we have two listener guests today. Coming up in the second half, we have Lauren, who found out at 29 years old that she carries the BRCA, or BRCA, gene mutation. And she's going to tell us all about how this has affected her family building plans with her husband. There's barely any mention of COVID in this interview, so if you want to skip ahead to her, go to about 19 and a half minutes. Now, last week we spoke to Hannah about her pregnancy, and she said her appointments were being switched from in-person to telehealth, and I had so many questions about that. Well, one of my lovely Patreon subscribers reached out. Oh, hi! Hi! How How are are you? Good. (laughs) That's Jacqueline. She's been a nurse for 22 years, but four years ago she went to grad school and got her master's in nursing and midwifery. That's right. She's a certified nurse midwife working with an OB practice in a hospital, which is different from midwives that do home births. After listening to Hannah's episode, she said that she had lots to tell me about telehealth. So here she is. And I should mention that on top of the fact, the very heroic fact that she is a certified nurse midwife who is currently working during a pandemic, she's also a single mother by choice to her beautiful 17-month-old daughter, Evelyn. So how are we doing visits? I tell people it's a balance of one exposing my patients to to COVID when you come into the office Mm -hmm. versus when we can keep you home. And also, I I kind of joke that OB is now going to almost a more midwifery. We can take a breath. We don't have to be so dug into everything. Right. You know, we don't have to see our patients exactly on the dot. And so what a lot of practices are doing is we're, we're spacing out a lot of our visits. What a lot of women may find is when they first get pregnant, we may not see them until the, toward the end of their first trimester. So mm-hmm. instead of getting seen at like six, eight weeks for women who aren't 
with an RE who are getting seen all that time. Isn't it? Isn't that first ultrasound kind of important to make sure it's not a an ectopic or anything? It or is, is that with the blood work? The blood work would tell you. No, usually that ultrasound is what I rely on to visualize is the is the pregnancy in the uterus. Yeah. However, what we do is then we're we're talking to people early in pregnancy and we're giving them a lot of precautions similar. Um, to your physician did with you saying, if you have abdominal pain and stuff like that, I want to know about it. Yeah. Knowing that early pregnancy can have significant cramping, but yeah. the cramping with early pregnancy is a lot different than I'm doubled over in pain and I can't move. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of letting patients be tuned into their bodies. Again, knowing the chances of you being out in the community, in the environment and potentially catching COVID-19 versus having an ectopic pregnancy. Right. The chances you know, are much higher to contract with, the disease. Right. And so it's, it, we're kind of weighing all those things right now. Yeah. And one of the things is doing that is combining that visit when you get it, say, around 10 weeks, is we can then do the free cell DNA, which is that genetic screening, which you draw mom's blood, you look at baby's cells within mom's blood, and we can check for um, Down syndrome, trisomies 21, 13, and 18, and monosomy. It, it, we can like kind of group that appointment together if we bring people in just a little bit later. So you're having to see them I once see. instead of twice. Okay. And so the next appointment people have, that's what you were saying? Um, is 16 weeks. And that's usually when peop- some people will experience those first telehealth visit. And for a lot of telehealth visits, we're asking people how they're feeling. So, you know, at 16 weeks, do you feel your belly's growing? Is your morning sickness resolved? For preg- people who've been pregnant before around 16, 18 weeks, they'll start to feel that first movement. Are you feeling baby moved? All those things are reassuring to me. Mm. What's scary for patients is they're like, well, how do you know I didn't have a late-term miscarriage? You know, mm-hmm. how there are some people, you know, losing their baby. You know, my friend lost her baby at 12, 13 weeks. And that's why I kind of tell people, again, statistically, the risk of a late-term miscarriage or miscarriage after 10 to 12, 10 weeks, and we've seen that heartbeat, we've gotten you this far, is very low. Mm-hmm. And again, it's balancing that risk with being out in the community, out in the environment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I also tell people, are you seeing your belly grow? You're seeing those body changes that are happening. And that's kind of a reassuring thing to people. They're like, oh, yeah, my belly is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. So that's a reassuring that the baby's getting bigger, that things okay. are happening. And then usually everyone's seen it 20 weeks for their anatomy scan. 20 weeks? 20 weeks is about so, when we do so that. So the 16 week is not a it's, – it's telehealth. It's not in person. Right. And right. then 20 is the uh, anatomy scan. Yes. And so that would be another in-person visit where you'd get to see your baby. It's that big ultrasound where we know gender, we look at all the pieces parts, mm-hmm. um, you know, check heart and lungs and everything about the baby by ultrasound to see if everything's normal. Yeah. Okay. So we're doing, and I know you talked about it the last one, the NT scan right? at the last appointment. And so the free cell DNA, if you do that, we're not doing that nuchal translucency. So it's kind of, or sometimes we'll do it after, well, they'll schedule you around 12 weeks to kind of do the nuchal translucency measurement and the NT draw together. I don't understand. Um, <laughs> I don't remember things that I've talked about on the podcast before. So the NT scan, that's where they're, tell me again. That helps. That is one of the screening tools we use to look for the trisomy disorders. And when does that usually happen? That usually happens around the 12 week mark. So that's why some providers are waiting to bring their patients until 10 or 12 weeks. 10 weeks, we can draw the free cell DNA. Mm. 12 weeks, we can do the nuchal translucency scan. Okay. So then you have your 20-week scan, and then what? At 24 weeks, um, a lot of times we're doing telehealth. And by that point, most, almost all patients are feeling their baby move. They're having that big belly growth that really happens between 20 and um, 24 weeks is a big time where women start to post those pictures of like, hey, I feel like 
you no longer feel like you're chubby, you feel like you're pregnant, you're Mm. starting to get that pregnant belly. Mm -hmm. And you kind of are seeing that baby grow, feeling that baby move, which is reassuring to everyone. So at this point, how many, if there was no pandemic happening, how many ultrasounds would one actually have normally? Most, most women have an ultrasound in the early pregnancy to make sure that it is a uterine pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is at 20 weeks. And that's that big anatomy scan gender, you know, where everyone wants to find out the gender. I want to look at the heart, the lungs to make sure everything's developed properly. Mm -hmm. And then usually for most healthy women, they don't need another scan the rest of pregnancy. Really? Really? Okay. Um, Some practices will do one or find a reason to do one in the third trimester out of curiosity and growth, but actually most insurances won't pay for an additional one without a diagnosis. Um, you mm. really don't need a growth ultrasound in the third trimester as long as your measurements are good, your belly's measuring normal. We can palpate, do something called Leopold's maneuvers where we actually feel how big the baby is as long as when we do that, the baby isn't feeling unusually large or unusually small. Can, I can kind of by Leopold's maneuvers, um, I can usually get with, I can get within a pound either way. Wow. Um, you know, I can tell you if you've got a five, six pound baby in there versus if you have a nine, 10 pound baby in there. Right, 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 right. Um, you touch enough bellies and babies over time, you get a general idea. Did you deliver any babies today? I delivered none today. I was in the office. Okay. Oh, that's right. That's right. Office. Yes. Gotcha. I touched a lot of babies today. You did? When you get later in pregnancy at 36 weeks on, you still see us every week. Yeah. So most of the people that I saw today were 38, 39 weeks pregnant. Um, having those big discussions with them because a lot of them are very scared right now. Are their partners going to be allowed in the hospital? Right. All that kind of stuff. And that's a big fear for a lot of our patients. Yeah. We are now at this point in our hospital allowing partners. Uh-huh. Family visit members cannot visit. It's only your one support person. They cannot swap out Shit. the same person the whole time, which is rough for yeah. a lot of people. And it's an emotional blow. But I kind of tell everyone we're trying to keep everybody safe. Because the more people we have in the hospital, the more we're risking more COVID patients. Yeah. And not only are we risking the pregnant women, the newborn babies, their partners, but our hospital staff. Yeah. And if, if a ton of our hospital staff gets sick, you know, it's protecting us. And then it's also protecting our children. And I tell people, every healthcare worker's biggest fear right now hmm. is that I'm going to bring it home. Yeah. That I'm going to be the one who infects my daughter. Yeah. Or my brother or my sitter who's 60. And what if I infect them and they die? Oh, my goodness. And I'm the person who caught that. Yeah. And that's my biggest fear every day going into work. Is it that, any, is that I'm going to bring this home? Yeah. And I will be the cause of someone I love dying because of my job. Fuck. And that's, that sits in the back of all of our minds every day. Yeah. And when I come home from work, I strip my clothes off in the garage. I go straight into the shower. I wash from head to toe, shampoo my hair, everything, change into fresh clothes before I even see or touch my daughter. Jesus. You know, I walk in the house and that's what we all do. Many of us do. Yeah. As a single mom by choice, as an SMC, I don't have the option of sleeping in a different bedroom while my spouse takes care of my child. Yeah. You know, I, it's me all day, all the time. And for us to expose less people, truly, when I walk in the door, my sitter's ready to leave. My brother who watches her at night when I have 24 hour call shifts at the hospital, while I'm getting in the shower, I walk out, he's standing at the door to leave. So we don't risk contaminating. And so it's, it's, it is a big thing. Thank Um, you. Thank you for what (laughs) you're doing. And, but everybody, and I tell people what I do is no 
bigger than the people at the grocery store. I know. People who are staying home, the people who are staying away from their loved ones. We're all doing what we have to do to get through this. We just have that deeper part of it. And, and you know, luckily, like I said before, COVID-19 is not harsh on the pregnant community and the obstetric community, which is surprising because most illnesses are. It's not like it's less prevalent in because you're pregnant. It's right. just not as bad right. as other flus have been. Right. Okay. Correct. So mm-hmm. pregnant women will still get it. Pregnant right. women will still have it. You know, now, will we possibly see some pregnant women die from it? Yes. However, statistically, by and large, it's not hitting them any worse than general population. Right, right, right. Which is really nice. Yeah. Like with H1N1 in the OB world, it was, you know, seeing our patients and if they were so even a little bit sick, we were terrified. Right. Um, yeah. Not that we're not scared with with COVID-19, but we're a little less because, you know, it's 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 not as harsh. Yeah. Of, of, an, in, of an illness um, yeah. on the pregnant women yeah. um, as others have been. So the appointments we're skipping aren't non-essential appointments. So when people are out of this being like, well, if you could do telehealth then, I don't need to see you. But in telehealth, we're balancing that risk versus benefit. Right. One of the questions my patient had today um, that I answered, she's like, well, if you don't see me at 32 weeks, how do you know I don't have preeclampsia? You know, are you checking my blood pressure? So what a telehealth visit looks like is me calling the patient and you. I'm like, hi, Molly, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the same questions that I ask in the office, is the baby moving? Are you having any cramping, any spotting, any bleeding, any leaking of fluid? You know, those kinds of things. How is your belly? Now, some patients, if they're like, oh, we may teach them ahead of time how to measure their own belly with a measuring tape mm-hmm. and have someone at home help them. Mm-hmm. Some patients, we may just be like, hey, do you feel like you're getting bigger? Again, the most reassuring thing to me in any pregnancy is how is your baby moving? Mm-hmm. That to me is one of the most reassuring factors because like I tell my patients, when you get sick, what do you do? You lay on a couch, you veg, and you stare at a TV. Babies inside when they don't feel good do the same thing. They Mm. don't have Netflix, (laughs) but they don't move as much. The movements change. They're not moving as much. At what point should you be worried? If your baby doesn't move for four hours or two days? So your baby after 28 weeks will get into a pattern. My daughter was always busy after lunch, would never move in the morning. So Mm -hmm. if she didn't move, from six in the morning when I woke up till 10, 11 in the morning, I didn't worry because I knew after lunch was her moving time. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, after lunch, I'd be trying to do appointments and she'd be having her disco dance party in there. Oh my God. Quiet down again. And I could guarantee by the clock at 730 at night, it was another disco dance party. Okay. Now still, I'd have occasional movements. You also hear about kick counts, wanting to do those eight to 10 kicks in an hour. That doesn't have to be every hour of the day. So you kind of look for their frequent times. Definitely, if you go six to eight hours and you haven't felt the baby move, that's when I tell patients I want them to drink juice. I want them to lay on their left side and do focused kick counts. Okay. Counting each individual movement over the course of an hour. Eight to ten in an hour is a reassuring number. Okay. Now, if someone calls me and goes, well, I got seven, I'll be like, okay, count for another hour. Because, you know, that eight month could have been at 61 minutes. Right, right. And even knowing that eight to ten, say even eight kicks in an hour that's approximately one every nine minutes. So that's not very frequent. Yeah. And that's why I tell people you kind of have to focus because you might miss one. Right. But it is reassuring to have those eight to 10 kicks in a focus, you know, hour. Wow. Uh, This is scary. (laughs) Remember what I tell everyone. Most pregnancies are normal. Yeah. And it's scary. Yeah. But most pregnancies turn out fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's what you have to focus on yeah. is that this is a natural process. And I tell people 99% of the time things come out okay. Yeah. Now, another big worry for patients is how are you going to check my blood pressure right. on a telehealth? So preeclampsia is a big thing. It's, it is one of the big three in pregnancy that we worry about. Um, my biggest concern for preeclampsia comes in the later part of pregnancy when I'm starting to see you all the time again. Okay. So telehealth visits are usually early in pregnancy. Like example, in my office, after 36 weeks, I see everyone every week. And a lot of the times that's our biggest risk window for preeclampsia. Not that they're not going to have it. They can't have it before. Some people can develop at 34, 32. But preeclampsia also comes with other symptoms. Mm-hmm. Headache, visual changes, mm-hmm. upper tummy pain that just doesn't feel right. Mom just doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And those are those times, even though we're doing telehealth, even though we have COVID, I don't want to keep people in the office. When my pregnant patient calls me and she says, I I just have this headache that won't go away no matter how much Tylenol I take. I don't feel good. I just feel horrible. I'm going to say, I want to see you in the office. Yeah. Okay. And even with telehealth visits, I could be having a telehealth visit and look at someone and be like, what's wrong? And someone could not look right. And I could say, you know what? I think I need you to come and see me in the office, be it that day or the next day. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those. It gives me a good time to have a conversation, potentially keep my patients out of my office. Mm-hmm. But also it allows me to sometimes I can look at a pregnant woman and be like, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. You don't look like normal. You look like you don't feel good. You know what? I want you to come in and see me. Okay. You know, and, yeah. and to me, when a pregnant woman says, I think something's wrong, I always listen. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, well then, you know, if she's even saying, I, I, I think something's wrong, okay, well, come see me. Yeah. Um, and usually as we get to that later in pregnancy, 34, 35 weeks on, we're still seeing our pregnant women all the time because that's when we're going to have our biggest risk factors yeah. of things going wrong toward the end of pregnancy. And so we'd still see you every week in person. Thank you so much for doing for doing what you're doing and uh, remaining at work and continuing to help everybody at the risk of your own health and your family. And it's just so difficult. And just thank you so much for doing that. Well, you know, it's 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 what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, my job has been a blessing to me in so many ways mm-hmm. um, throughout my life. And it's, you know, this is what I do. And it's just me taking care of people on a different day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, you just do what you do. Aww. So, well, hug your parents for me. Okay. I, I hope will. you're hugging. Are you hugging them? Not Are yet. You actually hug-, <laughs> hug them. Hug them. <laughs> okay. As a healthcare provider, I am telling you, if you have all been isolated for this amount of time, you are safe to hug them. My dad rubbed my foot the other night. <laughs> if you are, you isolated yourself for 14 days, you have yeah. gone nowhere else but to see them. Yeah. You are safe. You are in the same house, breathing the same air. Okay. You are safe to hug them. Okay. I'll tell them. Physical touch is healing. It is emotionally healing and soothing. It releases oxytocin and serotonin, all the good hormones in our body. Okay. And it's important. And that (laughs) physical touch is important. And it actually helps your immune system. Yeah. And all those things. So I tell everyone hugs are important. And right now I tell people, even if you're not a hugger, you have to hug the people you're isolated with. Okay. Because it's healthy for you. (laughs) Okay. You convinced me. We're going to go hug. Everyone has to go hug. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do it. I want All pictures. Right. Okay. I'll post a picture. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll talk You're to you welcome. soon, Jacqueline. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Jacqueline, for taking care of pregnant ladies during this scary, scary time. And thank you so much for giving us all a better understanding of telemedicine and how it can work with pregnancy. Now 
we're going to speak with Lauren, who needs no introduction because I introduced her earlier. Oh, you don't remember? Well, then I'll remind you. Lauren has the BRCA gene mutation and is undergoing IVF. Hi. Hey. I'm sorry I look crazy. I I feel crazy. Oh, I should say I recorded this with Lauren on the day that I moved from the Airbnb to my parents' place, so uh, my brain was fried. Nah, nah. It's quarantine. It's isolation. Everyone's looking a little bit different right now. Okay. So, you're married. Yeah. <laughs> Nine years this year. Cool. So, and you're youngins. Yeah. Early, relatively speaking. Early 30s? <laughs> yep. Yep. So, I got the BRCA diagnosis when I was like three days before my 29th birthday. Okay. So, with um, a family history of breast cancer, Around here, or at least with our um, medical practitioners, you get put in the high-risk clinic because family history, it automatically assumes you're at a higher risk, which makes sense. So I went for my annual appointment. I was like, hey, can we do a mammogram or something? Like, I just want to make sure we're being really vigilant with this. And my practitioner was like, well, you know, typically they don't do 28 going into 29. Okay. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I always had a feeling that my boobs were going to be trouble for me at some (laughs) point. I was kind of adamant about getting surveillance started early. Yeah. And so, yeah, I wanted to go for the mammogram. She's like, well, it's not clinically indicated right now. And most insurances won't pay for it when you're so young, even with a background history. Hmm. I was like, okay. I was like, well, what about genetic testing? And she's like, yeah, sure. We can do that. Um, I don't think she expected anything to come back for it, but yeah, we took a blood sample. It's super simple. So if you ever need to get tested, it's just a blood sample. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's actually like Ancestry or maybe 23andMe can do it with the saliva sample as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I sent those test results in, kind of forgot about it. And then, yeah, a couple days before my 29th birthday, I get this call. And uh, I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, you're positive for BRCA2. We need you to come in so we can discuss the next steps. Wow. For the listeners, can you tell us what BRCA is? Yeah, everybody has the BRCA gene. You're supposed to have it. It's when it mutates that it becomes a problem. So there's okay. primarily two strains of it that get the most like media attention, if you right. will, um, which is BRCA1 and BRCA2. So they're variations on a theme, basically, of different mutations. The risks are a little bit different. Um, obviously, family history plays into a point of that as well. Mm. But um, so I'm positive for BRCA2. Uh huh. What are the risks for that one? Um, basically, my lifetime risk for getting breast cancer is somewhere around 85%. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I'm also at an elevated risk for ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, as well as melanoma. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, not the birthday present you were looking no. for. <laughs> no. But so what that means for me now is every six months I go for testing for my breast. They go back and forth between an MRI and a mammogram just to keep that visual um, looking at it and making sure we're keeping on top of things. And then ovarian cancer, they use um, transvaginal ultrasounds. And there's also a blood test that can be done. Um, some medical professionals are for it. Some are against it. Just kind of depends who your provider is. What does uh, the blood test tell you? Um, so it's a CA-125 is the... Um, name of it and an elevated CA125 level can be an indicator of possible ovarian cancer or something that should be looked into more in depth than just, oh, hey, it's a simple blood test. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. And so are you doing, are you doing two MRIs and two mammograms a year or one of each every other six months? Of each. Got so it. The, um, imaging is every six months. And then it's, um, so I had my MRI in December and that came back clean, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm slated to get a mammogram sometime in July and then another MRI for Christmas. So <laughs> Yeah. Why did I have an MRI? <laughs> <laughs> I literally can't remember why I had a mem- MRI recently. 
Was it my leg? You don't know. I'm not sure. My leg. You had your stomach stuff. Oh, yeah, some- my liver. Thank you. There it is. <laughs> I've got two masses in my liver that they wanted to yes. check out. <laughs> Thank you. Sounds like something worth keeping an eye on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah. goodness. So we have all of that going on. And mm-hmm. then um, once we're done having kids, I'll be getting um, a prophylactic mastectomy and an oophorectomy, which is just a really fun way of saying getting my ovaries removed. Yeah. What's prophylactic? So a lot of times a regular mastectomy is, oh, you have cancer in your breast. Let's remove it. Uh-huh. The prophylactic mastectomy is getting rid of all the breast tissue and everything like that ahead of time. So gotcha. hopefully I will take my risk instead of 85 to somewhere around like three, four percent, maybe. Okay. Okay. So preventative. Probably. Yes. Preventative. I get it now. Magic. Yeah. So prophylactic mastectomy, oophorectomy, is that how you say it? That's how I say it. I may not be saying it 100% correctly, And did you say something else too? I'm at risk for melanoma and pancreatic cancer, but mm-hmm. those don't really have any fun surgery names that I know of right now. Prevention-wise so. for, for melanoma, is it just sunblock and no sun? Basically. Um, I don't know if it's really good with the lighting here, but I'm a redhead anyway, so I go in for annual skin checks as good, it is, and now good. they're just like, okay, you really can't skip your appointment now. Yeah. Have you always been careful with your skin? Yes. Uh, yeah, my dad has fair skin as well, so he was very adamant from a very young age oh, that good. Nope, we were putting on sunscreen good. and you're going to wear a hat and long sleeves and all of that. Good. So I'm very grateful for that because it's kept me safe so far. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So that must have been a terrible, a terribly hard adjustment for you to make in your brain, thinking about all that stuff. A little bit, yeah. It's really overwhelming to begin with, just to be like, okay, there's so much information and there's all these different routes you can take in terms of, you know, whether prevention or monitoring or this, that, and the other thing. Um, I actually found a lot of support online. There's a lot of great Facebook groups mm. because you know, I was 28, 29 when I found out. I was like, yeah, sure, there's got to be something there for this. Yeah. But to be able to go on and look and there's women who have done these surgeries already or are planning for it. Um, and, you know, they're a super great resource in terms of, oh, this doctor's really great. Or, hey, has anyone tried this medication? What were your side effects? Is it worth trying it for that? Yeah. And that's actually how I found a group. I think it's IVF with PGT de- testing for the BRCA mutation. It's some variation oh, good. of that. Cool. Um, there was a specific Facebook group specifically for women going through IVF because of this mutation. And yes. that was a great resource. Okay. So tell us now about that, how you're... Um doing IVF for that purpose? So um, getting started, I didn't even know this was a thing, obviously, until it's something you come face to face with. And you're like, okay, how are we going to do this? I know the only my own anxiety that I feel because, you know, you have this mutation, mutation, you can't unring that bell. Like every time mm. I have breast pain, even if it's just for my period or whatever, mm. I'm like, oh, is it cancer? Yeah, like the anxiety that stays over <clears> you for that. Not great. And I'm hoping to not get cancer. And we figured out that it was an option to do IVF with this specific testing in order to make sure that you're implanting embryos who are negative for it. And the is, thought of being able how, to, what is the chance that it gets passed on? A hundred percent, 50 percent, 25? I don't know how you have to remind me about genes. Yeah. Back to the uh, pundit squares that we did. Yes. In high school, something like that. I think that's I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so for the BRCA mutation, it is literally a 50-50 chance of okay. passing it on. Okay. Kind of unfortunate odds. Did this move up your timeline of when you wanted to have kids? It sort of pushed it back because I was in school at the time for my occupational therapy assistant degree. So we oh. knew that it was going to be a little bit before we had kids because I wanted to finish my schooling. 
And then figuring out that, oh, wait, this is going to happen and this and this and this. We wanted to move forward with it quickly. Obviously, you know, age is a factor for healthy pregnancy, embryos, all of that good stuff. Mm. You know, I couldn't do clinical rotations. Yeah. Do yeah. IVF at the same time. Right. But um, would you have been trying naturally if you... Yeah. Okay. Probably. We were looking at getting that started towards the end of my schooling. So okay. that kind of pushed it back for us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Where, where did I interrupt you? I have no idea. Um. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> oh, Dougie. <laughs> that's, that's AJ down there. Oh, uh, hi, buddy. AJ. Oh, he can't hear me. My, you got headphones on. <laughs> AJ. So, yeah, we got that. Uh, the clinic is actually in Detroit, so on the southeast side of the state. Uh. And... We had to decide, okay, so I don't want to be driving there in the middle of December. So we were looking at timelines logistically in terms of, I'm going to have to drive. I don't want to be doing that in the middle of winter. Yeah. What's a good time for this? (laughs) How far did you say the drive to Detroit was? Uh, Two and a half hours. Oh, wow. There's no other fertility clinics close to you? There are. Uh, Thankfully, we have really, really good coverage in terms of what they do cover with our insurance. Mm -hmm. But they happen to not partner with the ones that were in town. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So given the choice between paying out of pocket and having to yeah. drive, we chose to drive. <laughs> yeah. So we did our first round, I want to say started July or August of 2019. Okay. And yeah, you've done IVF. You know how much of a joy that is. <laughs> yeah. And also the driving back and forth. I mean, you're getting checked every other day, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That's wild. Um, so we've done two rounds at this point. The first round, I did drive back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. The second round, so we tried to kind of do um back to back just because again you're younger and getting after it that way. Yeah. And I went in for my baseline ultrasound to start the second round and um Dr. Wheeler was actually my doctor for this oh, appointment. Right. Dr. Wheeler listeners has been uh she's she's given us some she's given us some guidance on, on here before. <laughs> yes. She's great. Wait, before you move on to round as just to round two, what happened with round one? I went in a little naively, honestly. Yeah, sure. Um because you hear all these people are like, Oh, I'm young. We got like 30 or 50 eggs. And I right. was like, Oh, I'm great. I'm healthy. Like, this is not going to be a problem. We're going to get a bunch. We're only going to have to do it once. Um, that was not the case. Yeah. So we got, I think it was 12 eggs that first round uh-huh. and we ended up only being able to send two off for testing. Uh-huh. And, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. That was a bit of a punch to the gut. Yeah, dude. So the PGA testing, the testing for abnormalities, um, we did. And then PGD or PGM, depending on who you talk to is how it's described. So we actually had to make a specific probe to test for my BRCA mutation. Okay. So they collected cheek samples from me and my husband and my parents to make this probe. I wish I knew what it looked like, honestly. What? But they use that. So they take off a sample of the embryos at day five, six, seven, whatever day they decide to feed them. And send them off. And then the probe has the ability to detect whether or not they have the BRCA gene. I don't understand why they would need a cheek swab from all of you. 
it was the genetic material. So but, well, I don't understand they, why they would need that because you have the gene. Can't they just check out the gene in the biopsy? The way I had it described to me, so like the BRCA2 gene is its own thing, but the, I can't remember, it was like the, you know, A, B, C, D in terms of the gene makeup and which way it connects. Uh-huh. So plenty of people have the BRCA2 mutation, but it looks a little, it looks differently in each person depending on the specific genetic makeup. Oh. So like, let's say the BRCA gene showed up on gene AB for me. Mm-hmm. And then if I have a family member who's BRCA positive as well, um, it's say it shows up in gene BC on them. Mm-hmm. Then they know to build the probe for that B portion of the gene because that's mutated on both of us. I gotcha. I don't know if the listeners gotcha, but I gotcha, <laughs> I think. And I that's couldn't repeat it. I can describe it. I'm sure there's a much more clinical way to do it and feel free to correct me on all of that. But so that's it's, gist, it's you know? which, it, it determines which gene, uh, sorry, it determines which fucking fuck. I can't. <laughs> it determines which part of the chromosome they're testing, maybe. Right. So they find out where it is on your in your genetic makeup, and they find out where it is on your parents or your mother or your father's. I'm not sure why they did your husband. Oh, yeah, I guess. Because yeah. his genetic material would be at the embryos as well, because okay. he's the sperm donor right. in this case. <laughs> I'm sorry. I forgot what a husband was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway yes they're finding out where it is on you guys so they know where to look on the genetic material of the embryo correct okay got it all that goes into this genetic testing is so far above me yeah okay so what did they what did they find out um so miraculously both of the embryos came back um BRCA negative which is fantastic great um but one of them came back with trisomy 18 okay um (laughs) So, that, so listeners, that means that there's three something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> three chromosome 18. Instead of two. Yeah. So it would have had, I think, an 85 to 90% of miscarriage if uh, they implanted it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're not going to implant it. Right. Because, you know, you're going to miscarry that one and put you at greater risk for miscarrying additional embryos. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Or just general miscarriage. Wow. I could be voting here. Feel free no. to cut this out. no. I'm not cutting it. (laughs) Okay, so here's what I'm not understanding. Can a miscarriage cause a miscarriage, or are you just at a higher risk of having future miscarriages if you've already had one or two or three? Because that will be evidence that you are more prone to miscarriages. It's like a causation versus causality question, and I can't find the answer online. I did find on the Mayo Clinic's website, the predicted risk of miscarriage in a future pregnancy remains about 20% after one miscarriage. After two consecutive miscarriages, the risk of another miscarriage increases to about 28%, and after three or more consecutive miscarriages, the risk of another miscarriage is about 43%. But still, that doesn't tell us if a miscarriage causes a miscarriage or if you're just more likely to have multiple miscarriages. I don't know. Do you know the answer? You tell me, somebody, write me and tell me, is your body less likely, less able to carry a child after you've already had one or two miscarriages? Either way, so that one was not a viable option, unfortunately. So I had talked with my doctors there and said, hey, you know, can we do another round while I am younger? And they said, sure, we can, we can try. And then they tried to talk to our insurance about it. And our insurance was like, no, you have an embryo. You have to use it before we're going to allow you to do an additional um, retrieval round that we're going to pay for. Mm -hmm. And again, I can't begrudge them anything because they're paying for this. Mm -hmm. That being said, 
I was like, well, let me try. I have a background in healthcare. And part of what I did was convince um, insurances that, hey, yes, this patient does need this MRI oh. or this, that, or the other thing. Oh, my gosh. So I put on my science hat and <laughs> yes. I went to a bunch of research. You know, obviously, the age is its own factor with there. But then I went looking for specific BRCA incidences as well. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of information on that in terms of specifically for IVF, just because it is, you know, a smaller part of the population and everything like that. Uh-huh. Uh, but I went and did the work and called and I was like, hey, I know you guys already denied this, but I'd like to put in a personal appeal if I could. And they were, it was sort of under the wire too, because we were going back and forth about if we were going to do another retrieval round or if we were going to do the um, endometrial receptivity analysis. Mm-hmm. And so my period was coming due and I was like, okay, thanks insurance. We really need to know by like this day because there's yeah. a whole list of medications involved depending on what you're doing. Yeah. So I took a lot of notes. I got names of who I talked to and I was like, Hey, don't close this yet. Can we just have somebody look at this? Um, and you know, insurance, like ours had a specific utility department. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> AJ, <laughs> come on, Bubba. They had a specific fertility department that you could talk to. Um, but not everyone that works in health insurance, unfortunately, people gets all the ins and outs and everything like that. So I pushed to have, hey, can we have somebody clinical review this? Like, I don't want it to just be like, you don't check the boxes. Can we please look at this? I don't understand what you went to them with. You went to them armed with, you said stuff about BRCA and IVF. What did you? Yeah. So BRCA as it relates to fertility specifically. And, um, but did you say that you went, you, you brought them different cases of Specific women? No. Not specific women, unfortunately. I would have loved to have a one-on-one instance of that. It was like a clinical study that was done um, Ah. specifically looking at women with the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations and saying, hey, does this impact fertility or doesn't it? I found results for both sides, but obviously I was going to use the information that looked towards my case. And so what Uh, were you trying to prove? That putting off additional rounds of IVF due to age Ah. would be possibly detrimental towards fertility because I was like if we do put this one in and it works which we of course hope it does you know there's roughly a year of being pregnant followed by a year of breastfeeding hopefully mm-hmm. so that puts us at you know I would be 32 33 depending on when we did the transfer mm-hmm. and I'm like if we have the option to get when I'm 29 or 30 statistically speaking we're going to be better off in terms of the quality of eggs that were coming from there uh-huh. and looking at the math with BRCA you assume that half of these eggs are going to be BRCA positive. Right. So even if you do get good numbers, you automatically cut it in half one more time at the end of it all, just based on statistics. It's not a good numbers game. It's the worst lottery you're ever going right. to play. Yeah. So they finally said, yes, we will do it, which was amazing. And I went into, oh, here's, here, we're coming back here. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Dr. Wheeler, the appointment I had with her for my baseline And this was kind of the appointment that confirmed that we were doing the right thing for us in terms of trying not to pass on this mutation. Um, And she was doing the transvaginal ultrasound. And she's like, hey, you have a really large cyst on your ovary. Is that normal for you? And because of the BRCA mutation, like I said, anytime there's breast pain or ovarian pain, like I assume, crap, I have cancer. Right, right, right. So I, you know, like, first of all, the cycle's not happening because there's this cyst. It's producing estrogen, we found out later. Um, and it was a problem, but just dealing with, okay, you know, we thought I had plenty of time to have kids before uh-huh. something snuck up on, oh no, what if it's sneaking up right now? You know, and it was just, 
it was a lot. I think she got a very emotional version of me that day. Yeah, understandably. <laughs> so we ended up going through all the testing on that one. They're like, nope, it's just, I think, a functional cyst. I know there's like a dozen different kinds or something like that. But Ovarian cysts are fluid-filled sacs or pockets in an ovary or on its surface. Many women have ovarian cysts at some time. Most ovarian cysts present little or no discomfort and are harmless. The majority disappear without treatment within a few months. Most ovarian cysts develop as a result of your menstrual cycle. These are functional cysts. Functional cysts. Your ovaries normally grow cyst-like structures called follicles each month. We know that. Follicles produce the hormones estrogen and progesterone and release an egg when you ovulate. If a normal monthly follicle keeps growing, it's known as a functional cyst. There are two types of functional cysts. First, there's a follicular cyst. A follicular cyst begins when the follicle doesn't rupture or release its egg, but continues to grow. Oh, okay, this makes sense. You'll see why in a minute when you listen to whatever she's saying. Okay, corpus luteum cyst. When a follicle releases its eggs, it begins to produce estrogen and progesterone for conception. This follicle is called the corpus luteum. Sometimes, fluid accumulates inside the follicle, causing the corpus luteum to grow into a cyst. Functional cysts are usually harmless, rarely cause pain, and often disappear on their own within two or three menstrual cycles. Other cysts. Types of cysts not related to the normal function of your menstrual cycle include dermoid cysts, also called teratomas. These contain tissue such as hair, skin, or teeth because they form from embryonic cells. Cystadenomas. Cystadenomas. (laughs) These develop on the surface of an ovary and might be filled with a watery or mucous material. Endometriomas. These develop as a result of a condition in which uterine endometrial cells grow outside your uterus. Endometriosis. Some of the tissue can attach to your ovary and form a growth. Um, They gave me or told me to take a shot of Avadrel, the ovulation one. Right. It's been a little bit since I've done this. No, that's okay. I wonder what that was. So that would trigger your luteinizing hormone and I'm not sure why that would I'm interested to get it to ovulate I think so to oh, pop to... release whatever was going on oh with it. interesting okay and it worked <laughs> okay cool we did that but then you know having to wait for the cyst to go down and everything like this now we're in December and I'm like nope I'm not driving back and forth right um I should add to this I had a horrible car accident <gasps> in April of last year oh uh, shoot due to an icy bridge oh my god you were on a bridge uh yeah so I had hit the guardrail and that was fine I'm on the phone with emergency services like hey I can get myself out but if you could have somebody come over so I don't get hit while I'm trying to you know work my way back out of this um and while I was on the phone with them somebody hit the (gasps) same black ice and hit me going about 70 miles an hour oh my god um so, yeah, I don't mess around when there's snow on the road. Hit, hit your car while you're in it. Yes. Yep. What, were you okay? I was. Except Miraculous. traumatized mentally. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some trauma that we're working through Jeez. on that one. Oh. But thankfully it was Awful. before, you know, we had done all of the IVF stuff. So it wasn't like I was, you know, in the middle of stims or something right, like that. Right, right. Seatbelt trauma alone from that is super uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Yeah, we actually have relatives that live on that side of the state. So I went and stayed with them for our second round. And then... Oh, so you had your second round? We did, yeah. Okay, when was that? That was December of this past year. So our physician was still pushing for it because, again, that age factor. And he's like, I know you don't want to come here in the winter, but if we can get this done, then, you know, you can take a break until spring. You want to transfer or do the next step of the process. 
it's like, okay, this makes sense. I will figure out a way <laughs> to get right. this done. Right. Now was hubby, what did hubby do? Did he deliver, did he go stay there too? Or did he just deliver the sperm on the right day? <laughs> deliver the goods. Yeah. The time leading up to it, I just stayed at my um, relative's house and did the shots there. And then um, we came back to Grand Rapids and picked him up the night before. Mm-hmm. And that he came with me to the clinic that morning and did his business. And then we drove home. <laughs> he drove home. I should clarify. Yeah. I came out of anesthesia. I was not the one driving. <laughs> Okay. How, what were the results of that one? So that round, oh, what was different about that round? Loop run. Loop run was different about that round. That's a trigger shot the, too, right? I think it. they used it instead of, I should have had my journal out for this. I like wrote down all the medications that I was taking. It's okay. I can't remember. I think loop run is a trigger shot. Because oh, they put it on, I was taking it before. You were? The cycle. Yeah. I had to like prep with it. Oh, okay. I'll look it up. Don't worry. Well, it turns out Lupron isn't just used as a trigger shot. There is also something called a a Lupron down regulation protocol for IVF. I texted Lauren to see if this is what they did with her, and it is. So, here's what she told me about her protocol. Basically, she started Lupron two days before she started the other stims, and she stayed on that for the whole cycle. She said it took the place of cetratide. So here's what the internet says about that. Lupron is an agonist and cetratide is an antagonist. Rather than slowly suppress the pituitary over four or five days like Lupron does, these newer medications, cetratide and Ganarelix acetate, rapidly suppress the pituitary in a matter of hours. So maybe there's something about that rapid suppression of the pituitary that wasn't good for Lauren's egg quality and Lupron was a better way to go for her to do a downregulation slower, I guess? So yeah, the Lupron was supposed to help things kind of stay more in line or something like that, I believe. So I didn't have any like, you know, this follicle super ready to go, but all these other ones are far behind. Right. So we ended up being able to send four of them for biopsy this time instead of two like last time. So okay. that was great in terms of getting that done. And then we got the results back from that one when I was in jury duty, actually. So uh-huh. we're waiting on like uh, hoping I don't get called while this phone call's going on. So we had of the Four, two of them came back non-viable. They weren't going to be good options for transfer. Uh-huh. And then the two other ones, both of them were BRCA negative, which is good. Oh, God. I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, okay. Okay. I, I was right. holding my breath that whole time. What, and then what else? Um, so one of them is fairly is typical in terms of um, no aneuploidy or whatever it is. And then the other one we have is like a translocation of the small arm of chromosome 11 or okay. something like that. Okay. Um, so it's a low level mosaic is basically okay. the easy way to say that. Yeah. Okay. Um, All yeah. right. I was literally holding my breath. And when you said, <laughs> I feel crazy right now. <laughs> <laughs> so now what? Now is kind of the waiting game. So our insurance very generously added a third cycle. <gasps> to our plan, um, which we were hoping to take advantage of just because, you know, again, just because you have a good embryo doesn't mean it's going to be a good full-term pregnancy. Right. And, you know, only having two or three, depending on where you come at with the mosaic, we have to speak with a genetic counselor um, more fully to understand what the implications of that would be. And we haven't done that yet. So we're going to try and see if we could do that before we moved on to transfer. Yeah. And this was this past 
month, basically. So I was scheduled to go in on a Friday to go get my baselines done for the lab and ultrasound to send them in to see if, okay, is our next step a retrieval or is our next step a transfer? And then they called me Thursday night and were like, hey, we're sorry with all of the COVID-19 stuff happening. We're going to have to cancel your test. Okay. I kind of was anticipating that. So now we're just in the waiting game until everything passes and we'll go from there. And I know there's so many people out there who have it so much worse, like they're, you know, their frozen embryo transfer got canceled and all these things they've been waiting so long for. Yeah, I know. Just bump in the road. <laughs> it's so weird because most people in your uh, scenario would continue to be trying on their own mm-hmm. while do- going through fertility treatments of any kind, probably. But you guys have to wrap it up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> and then afterwards, what comes first, the the oophorectomy or the mastectomy? Maybe both at the same time, if I can get away with it. Good um, God. <laughs> there's a huge, huge hormonal shift that happens, especially with the ovaries. Yeah. Taking them out. So it'll be like, I haven't gone for my surgery consult or anything like that yet, just because you know, I do want to breastfeed and everything. So yeah. we know it's years off at this point. Yeah. But my greatest risk is for breast cancer. So given a choice between the two, the breast would go first. Okay. And then recover from that. And that's the other thing too, is it's something you think, oh, well, you know, it's a danger, get them done, everything like that. But you're on lifting restrictions for a good portion of your recovery. So if Ooh. you have a child who's too young to take care of themselves. Oh, Yeah you have to be able to lift them and I won't be able to do that for a portion of time. So that was another factor in terms of, okay, do we want to transfer younger so that, you know, I the sooner we're done having kids, the sooner I can get this surgery done, but I can't get it done too soon because then there'll be small kids. Right, right, right. Are you going to get some crazy different kind of new boobs? (laughs) You know, I've been looking at different options and I actually, have a Pinterest category, like a Pinterest board uh-huh. that's just called Someday Boobs on yeah, there. Someday so, boobs, okay. you know, I'm scrolling through, I'm like, okay, hers, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, so I think you're looking at like, everybody's boobs when you see them now, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you're going to have to deal with this like genetic unfortunality, the least you can do is be excited about new boobs. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think I have any other questions. Do you have anything else that you want to say about all of it? I mean, if you're to general listeners and obviously, you know, if you're at an increased risk for breast cancer, family, family history of breast cancer, please be adamant about getting testing if it's appropriate. Do your monthly self-checks, that sort of thing. Just keep a good eye on, you know, you know your body best. Listen and advocate for yourself because sometimes it gets pushed to the side and things might be different if things get pushed to the side. So it's worth taking the time and the effort and, you know, coming in armed to certain situations and advocate for yourself in IVF and general healthcare. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know how you did that with your insurance company. You said this is part of your job? Yeah. Um, so background in healthcare and just knowing like the general flow of how it happened when, you know, we're trying to get an MRI for somebody's knee mm-hmm. and the way they do it online is like, there's three boxes here with you know, different options. And if you don't fit that option, then you're automatically denied. Uh-huh. And it could be a totally valid reason of, 
you know, this is what we're looking for. But talking to a computer, you don't get to explain that option. Uh-huh. When you take the step to talk to a person and make sure, you know, okay, so I called this number and this is the general line. I was like, is there a nurse that I could talk to or leave this information for? Yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. They're going to call you back in two days. Okay, can I have the name of the nurse, you know, who's reviewing my policy? Or is there a better callback number if I don't hear back in two days? Yeah. Just kind of holding them accountable to, it's a two-way conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, that's smart because I mean, I, I know that every time I have tried to call my insurance company, they they always just say this is not a guarantee of anything. I can't keep track of anything that I that I say to them, anything they say to me, and then I don't I I, I write down that I spoke with somebody, but then I forget that that conversation ever happened and I don't know where that piece of paper went. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I use the um our insurance has an online portal. So mm-hmm. you could message through there as well. Okay. That was helpful for me because I like, especially when things get thrown at you in the middle of a cycle and your brain is already scattered and your body is all over the place. Yeah. You're like, nope, I need to have somewhere. I can go back to this. That's not yeah. a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to lose it. That's good. That's smart. And what about young women who know, who aren't married? I mean, I guess for them, they would want to just freeze eggs as early as possible, probably. Yeah. You know, especially just, you know, knowing what you know about yourself. And again, this is the type A personality coming out of thinking, oh, this and this and this is going to happen by this day. Right. And it might not. And better be safe and sorry in terms of what your options are. Obviously, financially is a different component of that. In a perfect world, it wouldn't be an issue, but it's something to look into. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. And thank you for being a last minute guest for me. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not a traditional IVF story, but um, like when I was looking for it before, you know, like I said, that Facebook group, but for months before that, I wasn't finding anything. So I was like, you know what, this might be a good option to be like, yep, there are people, you know, doing this for different situations and it's an option. Yeah. Like I didn't know this was a thing until it came knocking on my door and saying, hey, you might give this to your kids. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important for people to also to do what you said earlier and just make do get tested for it and stuff. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Absolutely. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much. And you could say hi to Dr. Wheeler for me too. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, AJ wants to say hi again, apparently. AJ. Hi, AJ. You can't hear me. Does AJ (laughs) have three legs? Yes, he's a tripod. He's a rescue boy. <laughs> Aww. And how's your weather? How's your quarantine going? <laughs> um, I'm actually an essential worker, so I'm not oh, quarantined shit. in what the is, uh, traditional sense. You're, you have to see people on a daily basis? Depending on how the day goes. Usually I'm more of the back office stuff, so medical records, answering phones, that sort of thing. So not like frontline yeah. healthcare workers, bless all. Well, I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you. Um, and enjoy your time off then in that case. Yeah, definitely will. <laughs> thank you so uh, much, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I and hope I'll, it was helpful. And yeah. thank you for providing such an educational resource. Like, oh, my pleasure. That's going on. I found out so much more listening to you and all the stuff that you go through. I think a lot of times, like you listen to the doctor, and you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And then you go home and you're like, I don't remember what he said or why yeah. he said that. But then having you go through it and looking stuff up, I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I know what. <laughs> so it's been really helpful oh that's so great and I want you to keep me posted on how things go with you I want to know about babies and embryos and all of that stuff yeah absolutely I'll keep you posted awesome thanks Lauren I'll talk to you soon 
Stay safe. Bye. That's it for the show, everybody. Jacqueline and Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your stories with us so that we can learn from your experiences. God, I feel so lucky that I get to be a conduit for... Conduit? Conduit? Yeah, that's right. Conduit for information. So thank you, all of my guests ever, and to all of my listeners for putting me in that position. It's really an honor. Anyway, sorry again for the delay in posting this episode. Blame the power outage. Blame the failed generator. Don't blame me. Well, you can blame me for using a hard drive that requires electricity. I could use a regular... No, but I wouldn't have had enough juice to get... Anyway. <laughs> Patreon. Join the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash spermcast. Venmo uh, to support the show as well. You can Venmo at molly Hockey. You can hire me if you want fertility consultations. Still loving that. Still loving all of the, the women that I've spoken to so far. It's just been a great experience. And that's it for now. Email me at spermcast at gmail.com. Call me. Leave me a text message at 323-741-1818. Find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at spermcast. And stay safe, everybody. Love you so much. Bye-bye. Oh, gosh, no, wait. You gotta subscribe, rate, and review. Okay, now, bye. You could be balding, bearded, shorter, tall, funny, smart, love basketball. From gay, straight, black, to white. Tiny ass with an underbite. I just need sperm. Sperm cast. An Erios production. Powered by Acast. 